Did you know that how you think about pain can change the way it feels? And the amount of pain you experience doesn't accurately measure tissue health or necessarily equate to damage? Pain, however, is a mechanism produced by our bodies for protection. This episode of Talking Physio brings together pain scientist Professor Lorimer Mosley and chair of the APA Pain Group, Diane Wilson, for a robust conversation on all things pain. The duo discussed pain research over the past 50 years and their predictions for physiotherapy and pain science in the 20 years to come. But before we dive in, I'd like to give a shout out to our show sponsor, Flexies, who are not only proud sponsors of this episode, but also remain the exclusive partners of the Australian Physiotherapy Research Foundation which work to support the profession by promoting, encouraging and supporting research. So thank you and let's get into it. So hi Loz. G'day Diane. Great to have you up to have a chat. So I'd like to have a chat to you about looking back over the last 20 years. Do you think acceptance of pain research has changed dramatically over that time? (laughs) It's a great question but what I'm really interested in Di is why you've changed the question. Why did you change it from pain research has changed to the acceptance of pain research has changed? Because I actually think pain research has been there for a long time, but it's been a long time before we've actually accepted it and seen it. Yeah, sure. Do you mean particular discoveries or our... I mean, I guess pain research has been there since Socrates, mm-hmm. hasn't it? But it, it feels like our understanding of pain has changed a lot in... Actually, realistically, 50 years, don't you think? Maybe not. I mean, 20 years it has changed as well, but gate control was 65. Yes. And Clifford Wolfe's very famous central sensitisation paper was 1983, Mm -hmm. same year that that Australia won the Americans' Cup. Yes. A long time ago. So I agree, yeah, like the the research has been around for a long time, but the acceptance has changed. So if I I try and respond to your question now that I've jibber-jabbered, and, and was it about why has it changed or, or how? Well, I, I think I'm probably coming from the point of view as a, as a physio, we've actually seen those changes in the last 20 years, whereas the research has been there, but we've become more accepting gradually of them and integrating them more into our practice over the last 20 years. Is that what probably where I'm coming from? Yeah, but if there was a why in their diet, a big chunk of that I'm looking straight at, at it, right? Because you think, actually, you think that these things don't change without champions and with people pushing it and it's no fluke that you were just made a nodded member of the APA. This isn't um, about me. I know it's not necessarily <laughs> about you but, but uh, I reckon that's a big chunk. The 2003 World Congress on Physical Therapy found the couple of abstracts that were suggesting that physiotherapy was sooner or later would move towards a a model that embraced far beyond the the joints and the muscles and Mm -hmm. into the spinal cord and outrageously even beyond. And I think there was two or three abstracts. And they weren't very well received, and that was 16 years ago. And now physio is is leading the clinical translation of contemporary pain science into care. I, I think it's really exciting. And clearly you do, because otherwise you wouldn't have campaigned and, and moved towards this specialisation in pain. I mean, you're, you're yes, such a part of exactly. that. exactly. And I think that, you know, we've been a long time... And we're not the only profession. I mean, there's degrees and professions in all of the health sectors that have 
not seen the research that's been there. So acceptance and integration, I suppose, is what I'm really looking at and how that's changed over 20 years. So perhaps we could get back to the original question, and has the research itself actually changed over 20 years? I think, the disco- I think we've had discoveries, yeah, in the last 20 years for sure. I mean, the, the, from a neurophysiological perspective, I think the, the spinal cord-related discoveries that, that Clifford Wolf drove in the 1980s showing this upregulation of the second-order nociceptor or the spinal nociceptor, mm-hmm. which really has has had a massive influence, so much so that, you know, I hear people saying it's central sensitisation pain. I don't really know what that means, but um, that's the language that was triggered by those studies. And, and now I think our understanding of the nociceptive system has left that behind. Uh, so much so that, that Clifford Wolfe, again, wrote a paper, I think, for four or five years ago, really well described by Tori Madden in a blog post that she wrote on what do we call this yes. sensitivity to everything? Remember that? Yes, paper? yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and really, I, I found that paper simultaneously true, you know, because it was true to the, how the science has changed and now we think, well, this is not all about this spinal nociceptor. Yeah. Uh, but I also found it a little bit frustrating because we think, what do we... What do we do? I mean, what what do you do clinically when you conclude that someone's pain system is being overprotective? What do you do? It's a good point. We actually have lots of indicators that it may be overprotective. We have a few objective signs that we can pick up and demonstrate that, hey, your system has become really, really sensitive And it's often then when you can actually show them, look, you know, they are feeling light touches pain on one leg but not on the other. And, hey, yeah, there's something going on here. And it's not in the tissues. Where else can it be happening? And so then you can start the conversation about the system becoming a bit upregulated and your alarm system is overprotecting you. And how do we look at decreasing that overprotectiveness? And we as physios have got some great strategies that we can use psychologically informed physios have got even more to be able to help to downregulate that but I think you have to be able to well it helps if you can demonstrate that they are one of these people with an overregulated system or an upregulated system so that then you can incorporate that into their management and they can see some some change talking about it is great and they a lot of people will pick up on the conversation and, and pick up on that knowledge and it's not hard for people to understand that they've got a spinal cord and a, and a brain involved in this reduction of pain it's an output of the brain but how that relates to their particular presentation there can be a, a separation between those bits of knowledge and how does it apply to me so it's great if you can find something clinically that you can say hey this is your system being overprotective and look what it's doing to your responses so then I find that that's that's the way to be able to make it meaningful for them. So if I was to play the perhaps the naive interviewer with this (laughs) scenario what I hear you saying is is like the the musculoskeletal physio should have an understanding of pain science but the impression that I get from the rest of what you said is that it's, it's a very complex thing and, it, and it's a human thing it's penetrates 
all aspects of physio. I imagine that, that there will be some people confused that what's, isn't this just the progression of musculoskeletal and why do we need a pain specialisation? What would you say to that? <laughs> uh, yes, well, I think this is science that needs to be integrated across the board. It's not just musculoskeletal. You're talking to the pelvic pain people tomorrow. We've had paediatric pain here. Pain. Most of our work is done because people present in pain. The majority of presentations, especially in primary contact, are because people want some relief from their pain, that their pain is affecting certain aspects of their life. And so whether that's in pelvic pain, whether it's in musculoskeletal pain, we're now moving into cancer pain, it's post-surgical pain, all of those areas are areas where physiotherapists can, can be working. And so to have a knowledge of how pain is produced as an output of the brain, no matter what the trigger is, if there's nociception to start with, whether there's no nociception, whether they're learning that response, it crosses all areas of physiotherapy. And so it's probably the one thing that helps to break down silos in physiotherapy. Mm. We need to use this as an overarching umbrella. That, yeah, it's the brain is involved. The brain is all powerful in all areas of physiotherapy. Yeah, no, and one thing that, if we go back to the idea of what's changed in the last 20 years, and another thing that's changed from my perspective as a pain scientist is that interaction between the immune system and the nervous system. Yes. I think the clinically liberating finding of the upregulation of parts of the pain system in the presence of immune threats and even molecular patterns associated with particular cognitions or behaviours or all sorts of cues, opioids. I mean, that's a, Mark Hutchinson's work's amazing on that. Mm. Um, but for mine, that tells me, you know, this is pain really is not actually a brain thing or a nervous system thing, almost like we've moved from pain being a musculoskeletal thing to pain being a nervous system thing. And now I think the next development is actually pain is the unified human. Pain sweeps across, is one protective output of this incredibly complex, I mean, you know how much I, Mm -hmm. I love the wonderfully and fearfully complex nature of the unified human. Mm -hmm. But that's where I think pain science is, is sufficiently intuitive for us to be able to integrate it into everything we do and sufficiently complex that we need to learn a lot about it and the and the human how the human works and to be able to work with an organism that's producing pain and has been producing pain for 20 years to be able to work with that organism the human towards recovery there's no doubt in my mind that it needs a higher skill set and i love that that physios are, are at the leading edge of recognising that higher skill set. Anyway, something you said made me excited about that and the reality that we have the capacity to communicate with, coach, persuade, inform, counsel in, a, in an appropriate fashion people and we can still touch them and we've got great credibility yeah. for the safety of the body. I mean, it's what, a, what an opportunity. Anyway, I and think ha- it's an And having that understanding actually sort of pervades all aspects of physiotherapy because we are after a healthy system. Yeah. So now that we know how much the neuroimmune system is involved in pain, we don't know where that's going to take us next. But we do know that some of the strategies that we as physios have got to upskill or to, to upgrade that neuroimmune system, such as exercise, 
and then certainly as we become more psychologically informed, we're actually able to integrate some of those psychological strategies into our management, just strategies of using language appropriately. We're not claiming to be psychologists and fixing psychopathology, but the more we understand the way that we talk and interact with our patients, the effect that that can have on their neuroimmune system and hence their pain and then their well-being you know we have got some far-reaching effects there that we can tap into and continue to make us a really really viable profession in the health field generally we don't have to be too localized and specific we need to be able to recognize that this science actually crosses across all of our areas of interaction with people yeah I, i wonder too that if in 20 years whoever's going to be having these conversations, it won't be you and I, uh, if their topic will be, you know, I wonder if it will be the, the next development of a pain specialisation, maybe it's 30 years, whatever, a pain specialisation is is just applying all of that that we're learning in the pain sphere to all the chronic diseases that we're trying to deal with. And as you know, many people with persistent pain have a range of comorbidities. Absolutely. Uh, and I wonder if that's the next... The next thing for physios, that you know, physio's journey will, will to become pain or maybe a disorder of hyperprotection physio uh, through cardiac rehab mm-hmm. or through diabetes mm. care or mm. through post-stroke recovery. Or respiratory, or, look respiratory. at the work that's happening in breathlessness and the perception, so we're changing perception of inputs into the body and, and how that can affect outputs. Yeah, that, that's a cool idea. Like that's a cool potential. That mm. yeah, that's that consistent across all those. And I love the breathlessness example. The stuff that Mari Williams is doing mm. and, uh, almost explained breathlessness. I think for, I think she might have done a talk on that. This conference does raise that possibility that the skill set that someone with high level and expertise in pain will be an easy jump that way, and vice versa. And I think it's that mindset that you know. We have an endless possibility here that we don't have a, a confined set of science yet. We're evolving. There, we are discovering new things all the time that they can keep our options open for inclusion in our in our profession. I think it's not a not a set of um, techniques or a set of uh, skill set at the moment. It's ever expanding because of the the body of science is expanding. Yeah, yeah. We're so off track. With our suggested talking points. Oh, sorry, we've really moved right off. What's the next? Maybe one? we should think about the next one, which some of our audience might be interested in learning your views about. About what are some of the misconception or myths about pain and treatment? And I'd be hoping that anybody listening to this might have already picked up that we've actually talked about some of the myths and, and addressed some of the myths. But probably for clarity, some of the myths that we've tried to dispel with the pain science as, it, as its basis. We bring that out a bit more clearly from your perspective. I often find myself in conversations on this sort of broad topic, you know. I should give it more thought before I talk about it because I imagine I probably wish I'd said something different all the time. But if I was to think about what is the common understanding of pain that mm-hmm. the people I've dealt with have, and I guess the last last few years of my explain pain sort of experiences have been very much in public facing outreach mm-hmm. events rooms of people maybe patients but maybe not maybe just interested punters mm-hmm. and in those in the conversations that you have as part of that and afterwards over a cup of tea and, mm-hmm. uh, 
the probably the most consistent surprise that people have is this idea that pain is not a marker of the extent of damage but is a mechanism for protection and that there are no exceptions in my understanding to that rule and that's the real big kahuna i reckon that and and you have these conversations after you know have a public event it's 45 minutes it's a performance and yeah yeah a few jokes and and hopefully you've planted something but then you have the conversation afterwards where someone might say oh i was really surprised by that graph you put up that figure you put up where to get a pain-free injury it has to be catastrophic and i think fantastic that let's talk about that and i say yeah in all of my understanding of pain and my experience of it myself but my, you know in in science and in treating people there's no exception to the rule that pain is measuring tissue damage and often people say yeah but if you do a bad injury it hurts more than a small injury and i said yeah that's cool but why would it hurt more in a bad injury and hopefully the answer will be or i'll coach it because you need to protect a bad injury more for, so it will heal. So, yeah, so it fits the, the principle. And it's almost like this problem of association versus causation that we see, we feel minor injuries hurt less than major injuries, so we presume that the size of the injury causes the amount of pain. But actually what the science is telling us is different to that because actually some of the worst pain you can have is before injury. And I just did a podcast two days ago with a different conference and I had this example, so I apologise if we're doubling up. But if you were, I don't recommend anyone does this, but if you were pushing a a drawing pin into your thumb, slowly pushing it in, it will really hurt just before you penetrate, just before the injury will be the worst pain. And once you penetrate, the pain doesn't get worse. Mm -hmm. So actually the the relationship between injury and tissue damage there is, is a non-existent relationship because... Pain is changing and tissue damage doesn't exist yet. So you can't, you can't plot that. And when you have these sort of conversations, I, I feel like that grabs the mo- maybe the most powerful reconceptualization. If I could shift that question with consumers and with clinicians, I think that was also, yeah, with clinicians, is to flip your whole understanding, to process all of what we think about when we think about pain from a protection model rather than from a damage and pathology model it doesn't rule damage and pathology out right i mean you know we we completely recognize that i reckon that's the biggest one and then obviously there's the example of the slip disc which i love to hate yeah what about you what are you in your experience what's what are the conceptions that people come to that you think are most are the most significant barriers to recovery i think sometimes i feel as though i've done a a reasonable job at explaining the complexity of pain and then, you know, they might say, well, yeah, but I still hurt. <laughs> and, you know, it's still bothering me. And as I try and help them to reconceptualise that this is your system protecting you, and it depends on the context completely as how they actually take on board that uh, language and that conversation quite often. But I think also what I've come to realise more often and more recently is that but this is a complex message for patients and I really have to break it down into small bite-sized pieces and in the language that's appropriate for that particular person because we lose sight of the fact, I lose sight of the fact that I've been talking and thinking this way for a while 
and that it makes perfect sense to me, but it's a huge leap for that person in front of me who is actually complaining of pain and suffering from some disability, either physical or emotional, that's hindering their life at the moment. And so to break it down into bite-sized pieces so that they can take on board one message at a time and for a lot of people it's a slow reconceptualization. And they might need to be able to break it down even more so that they can just go home with one piece of information at a time and then slowly integrate that into their into their response themselves so that they can bring about some change themselves. So I think that my working with people is, has really come... I think I use too complex a language at times and I think it's also something that people develop an intuition or physios develop an intuition as to what the right level is to intervene and I think for young physios, inexperienced physios, that's either intuitive or it's got to be learned. And so for some people it takes a long time to learn that and it's not something that's easily taught. But to be able to get to the level for that person in front of you so that we make it very person-centred. And then to be able to ascertain that the, my message that I wanted to get across has actually been perceived in its right form rather than what I think I've said. That is that perception again of what you know I think I've put it across really well, but their message, and we find this quite often that people come back and say, oh, it's something to do with my brain. Yeah. Yeah, I... I, I was chatting with a woman not that long ago who was terrified and totally disabled by her new understanding of her problem which was that the pain had got into her spinal cord and now had reached her brain Mm -hmm. and it was a disease and degenerative condition of her brain Mm -hmm. and you know when I heard that I thought I can recognize the message that that the clinician tried to deliver Mm And I'm recognising myself as being one of the proponents of delivering that. You know, so almost feeling slightly responsible for this misconception that really was way more damaging to this woman than, than her pain had been for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, potentially that's quite confronting for, for someone like me who's, who's been part of that trying to push, come on, let's give people the understanding. And, and I, I really enjoyed actually what Adrian Traeger was saying this morning on the basis of the Prevent Explain Pain trial that I, that I was very involved with. And when one of the things he took away was, is the whole idea of... This is me reinterpreting what Adrian said. Um, he didn't say this, but what it made me think was, by trying to give people an understanding of stuff, are we over-treating and bringing in new problems and wasting resources? And yeah, so I don't know, what do you think? Do you think that's possible? Oh, well, I think for some people, yes, I think it might need to be an integrated approach. You know, sort of a, for some people, the message, if you could get across the message that pain is there to protect you, but that is to allow your body to heal, and your body has got inherent healing capacity. And so, you know... The irresistible is, drive of yes. healing, though. And so for yeah. some people, that might be a really positive take-home message. They might go home and think about, well, how is that working? And then you can expand a little bit more into some of the science but for some people that might be all they need or want to hear I think we do fall into the trap of trying to give too much information at times I'm talking about somebody with an acute injury or subacute injury who hasn't been through a whole complex system of doctors and um, investigations and hasn't got trapped into the 
the world that we really need to untangle. So I think for somebody in the early stages, we can explain pain as a protective mechanism. It may well be that you have to say, look, it's not always, even in an acute stage, reflective of the degree of tissue damage because we know that some people, even after acute injury, would feel the same level of pain as a different intensity and some of those factors have been investigated and it's often the degree of other life traumas that are going on for that person at the time rather than the actual incident. And so, you know, this sort of research was done years and years ago by one of my colleagues when I did my Masters and it was long before the pain science was really out there. And so... You're not that old, though. I am. (laughs) (laughs) That was in 1990, I think. Anyway. (laughs) I was still a student. Yeah, I know. You probably weren't even born. (laughs) Thank you so much. Isn't that generous? (laughs) Yeah, so... um, you know, so I think we've been able to see that, that difference or the discrepancy sometimes in, in terms of uh, how different people responded. Now we've got reasons for why. and so. But that's off the question. I forget where we started there. Well, <laughs> what I thought, yeah, if we're all completely off topic, but that, that idea of and the, the scientific evidence that context is important and preloading of the protective system is yes. important is one thing that I love about the protective meter concept you know the idea of let's pile everything into a internal protection machine and and my understanding of biology is that that's our highest priority as organisms protect ourselves ourselves. and then seek reward Uh, that's in that order yeah and so you know that's a nice message that we can start with for a lot of people and that might be a good starting point for somebody who's coming with an acute injury and we want to put that into the context of what we know or how we know that this pain is working in our favour. Mm. But I don't reckon having... Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that having persistent pain puts you into a basket where you need a lot of complex explanation. No. I remember a patient that I saw, spent three hours with her, explain everything, thought, oh, yeah, this, uh, I've nailed this. She came back a week, and she was in a wheelchair with a 20-year history of back pain. And she left and came back a week later, walked in, looked 10 years younger, said, how are you? And she said, great. Haven't had any pain for five days. Everything's good. I'm making plans. And I, I presumed, how good is that? You know, like, oh, I've just explained it. She's understood it. That's been enough. And, and I said to her, so why do you think that is? Waiting for her to sing my praises. And she said, well, after I left you, I really didn't get any of that, but uh, I left you and went to my sister's clairvoyant. And at the end of that interaction, the clairvoyant said to her, oh, and I'll call her Deirdre, wasn't her name. Oh, and Deirdre, you don't need to be in the wheelchair because your back has healed. And I woke up the next day and I felt great. And we followed her for 13 months over a year, and she was right. So I, I mean, and then people who are very kind to me say to me, "Oh, yeah, but you probably laid the foundations." And, but she, she said to me, "I've got no idea what you were saying. I wasn't paying any attention." But it was like this fundamental shift, and and that experience for me makes me think: imagine if we could get at that. Imagine if we could make that happen, or imagine if we could make happen what happens in sadomasochists, where a noxious stimulus is pleasurable. Imagine if some, we could do something that would yeah. 
flick that switch. And I reckon there are these miraculous outcomes and, and a lot of clinicians have these and they might associate it with, like I did with a, a great pain science education interaction, but they might associate it with a particular manual therapy manoeuvre or a particular dry needle or a exercise and we all allocate it to that intervention mm-hmm. and maybe it, it wasn't, it was just the necessary click. And maybe it was being listened to for three hours. Maybe. <laughs> maybe uh, I'm back on the table as a contributor to her recovery. Thanks, yes, Di. Yes, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can't take away from the human interaction effect. I think that's going to be always there and that alliance that you can form with somebody and they might not take much from the detail but the fact that you were interested in them and that you listened to them and you validated I think validating their pain is a really important component of our interactions and so I think that can be if we introduce the complexities of pain science too early it may be interpreted as invalidating their pain and so I think that we have to be um, astute there so there's a lot of skills I think that aren't necessarily taught for physios to be able to actually deliver this appropriately and to know how to make it a person-centred approach. What about diet? What about the X factor? Like, you know, I've seen you engage with people and I watch, you know, Peter Sullivan with people and Dave Butler and Jenny McConnell and, and, and a host of other top-notch clinicians who all seem to have the X factor. Can you teach that? I think there's a personality behind that which you can't necessarily create but I do think with confidence and passion you can develop it. Right. Oh, oh, can we nail that quote everyone? With confidence and passion you can develop it. That's a cracker man. That's, <laughs> that's so much wisdom in that. So how should we change the training for physiotherapists or professional development for physiotherapists to give them the confidence and passion to make that happen? I think they have to do it in a non-threatening situation and that is away from a patient in front of you. You know, I think we have to have more interviewing, communication type of environments and practices and have that simulated environment really because it's not until you've actually been through the tricky stuff and found yourself slipping over the wrong words or slipping out the wrong words at the wrong time you think, oh, why did I say that? I know that she's interpreted that completely differently to what I intended. And so that sort of experience primes the practitioner a bit for being a little bit more astute, not using their default words. If we go back yesterday's keynote speaker talked about us transforming our, our approach and not using our default position all the time. And so I think often in a clinical situation you'll fall back to a default word and we'll talk about something like your pain pathway and then you're sort of really reinforcing the, the wrong message because that's been the default. And so we might have to think about, okay, that was wrong, but I'd like to be able to do that in a non-threatening situation where I'm not conveying the wrong message to patient. And we also need to learn some more skills about, well, how do we actually institute some behavioural change in this patient. You know, what are the strategies about it? And so there was a nice... I've been to a nice paper this morning that talked about behavioural change and and what's needed for behavioural change. And so, you know, it is things like confidence and motivation. So we need behavioural change ourselves as practitioners and we need to be able to know what those criteria are for behaviour change to try and help our patients make that change as well so I think we've got a lot of work to do in that 
communication behavioural change setting to be able to integrate our knowledge of pain science in an effective way across. Mm. Do you reckon then that instead of doing these professional development courses that people run where the expert shows them how to do stuff, we should have the quotation marks expert uh, you come to the course and you get to be the clinician while the expert pretends they're the patient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That'd be interesting, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, we, we're just talking about delivering the pain level two course, or developing it, and we're thinking about making this an actual practical series of modules. Like, you know, you'll learn a skill, some, some part of motivational interviewing, and there are some basic skills that can be taught or you, you can pick up quite easily and go and practice. And so we'll have modules of skills in communication and behavioural change strategies that you can actually teach the theory behind. But, OK, for your homework, before you do the next module, we want you to practice this with a peer and record yourself yeah, right. and yeah. have that feedback so that, you know, we, we actually establish those, those skills and see if that helps us with delivering the, the knowledge so that we can help with that change that we're after. This is sort of model that we're using in Pain Revolution it for is. the local pain. So that leads us on to Pain Revolution. Can you tell us a little bit about the Pain Revolution? Where uh, are we going with that? Sure. Pleased <laughs> uh, uh, you asked. Well, Pain Revolution, as you well know, is because you are a, a core player in it. It's really a movement, interdisciplinary, interorganisational, interprofessional highly collaborative movement with a very bold but not outrageous vision that, and here comes the spiel, that all Australians will have the knowledge and the skills and access to local resources to prevent and overcome persistent pain. But I think what's different about Pain Revolution from other excellent implementation and practice change initiatives is that we are focusing on consumer expectations as part of it. I guess if if we had a three-pronged attack, uh, one prong is consumer expectations, another prong is capacity, clinician skills and knowledge Mm -hmm. to deliver it, uh, and then policy and trying to get changes there and different funding models. But at the consumer expectations level, I get turned on by the possibility, and I mentioned this possibility this morning, that just imagine a world where... The contemporary thinking physiotherapist or some other clinician, GP, mm-hmm. had a patient in front of them and they didn't have as the first massive challenge teaching this person or persuading this person or opening this person's perspectives into the possibility that low-value care was not the best thing for them. Mm-hmm. Imagine if that was our first... Mm-hmm. That we could get rid of that barrier. Mm-hmm. So someone comes in and the patient comes and says, I've hurt my back... So that's, that's no good. What are your expectations of me? Well, I expect that you'll be able to reassure me that nothing's seriously wrong, that you'll be able to teach me what I can do while this recovers, and I'm happy to think of active skills or any psychological techniques, or how can I self-manage my journey to recovery? Imagine if they said that to you, and they didn't say, well, what I want is the same sort of treatment that the professional footballers get. I want an MRI. And then I want to see the best surgeon in town or whatever. You know, people come with these expectations and I'm blowing up that. I know it's, it's seldom actually that full on. But that's the vision of pain revolution. So that if we can start rurally and regionally and have resources in place. So the local pain educator program, the idea of that is a long game capacity building strategy. 
And as you know, these health professionals opt into a... It's a proper training program. And yes. It takes a year of university, part-time study, mentored planning and delivery of events. But I think the, the feedback that we're getting from those local pain educators in how it's improving their own clinical practice... Mm-hmm as well as developing the networks in their communities that they're locked into. And that's, that's another thing that I think is really powerful, that the people who are jumping in to take on this massive challenge, and it's a massive burden as well, are doing it because they're so committed to their community. You know, it's not the blow-in model, which we've done a million times. We're still doing it in some jurisdictions, and it's very expensive, and it's a low-impact low intervention. So Pain Revolution really is a multiple strategy hit on regions, trying to change consumer expectations and trying to implant in communities people with a higher level understanding of pain and pain education and high value care. Mm-hmm. They're the three things. So really we're shifting, I guess, the, the power play, aren't we? We're moving it away from the traditional primary contact person which is you know in especially in regional areas it's generally been the GP and we're giving it to the patient with some education with through education yeah I, I, I really think we are I think that's the objective that we're giving power to the people in a way mm-hmm. and resourcing them I mean it's the same approach we're having to lots of health conditions or it's the same objective not the same approach but it really strikes me that the top-down pressures to influence the system to avoid low-value treatments and diagnostic things and promote high-value interventions, they're not enough. They're clearly not enough. And in rural and regional areas, the low-value care is skyrocketing and the high-value care hasn't been changing. So we need another lever. And what Pain Revolution is trying to do is to get in there inexpensive health professionals, people we can afford to pay as a community, and change consumer expectations. And if we can marry those things, if we got physios in there, I mean, wouldn't it be great if every town had a pain specialist physio? That's probably unrealistic. But if every town can have a health professional who's got sufficient understanding of how pain works and how to coach someone and steer them towards high-value care, which is low-cost, it's high-value and low and low-cost, I reckon we can have a population-level difference. And so you're thinking not just for people who are in persistent pain and stuck in the system. No. You're thinking of an overall education program so that people don't expect to go and get the X-ray the first time around or the medication. They don't need to go straight on to opioids and high pain relievers they have that expectation that that is not what they need right from the word go yeah yeah i mean i guess there are other really nice objective uh, initiatives that are targeting that which are fantastic i think the thing that we're trying to get at is trying to find health professionals and implant health professionals embed them in communities that understand pain really well so when that complex person arrives and they might be a complex acute pain patient then they're still not going to panic and send them towards low-value care. I really enjoyed another aspect of Adrian Traeger's talk today, looking at how you can do this nudge behaviour to change. Uh, he was talking about what GPs do. But wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great too if a GP had high on the list, someone comes in with distressing musculoskeletal pain or, or any pain, 
and the GP, first thing they thought is, oh, I'll get you to have a chat with the local pain educator. Not, I've got to give you this drug, this scan. So, yeah, that's amazing. That leads us to one of our final points is that, and I think this is a system level issue now that we've got to, we've sort of come through from the, the patient, clinician, the wider community. And so, you know, what changes would you like to see in the Australian healthcare system in reference to pain and to this more empowering approach? Yeah, I want to throw that back at you, Di, because you're actually way more engaged in that side of things and the work you've done with APA, but, but also engaging with a range of stakeholders. Mm. What would you like to see change? Well, I, th- I see from my position as a private practitioner, I see one of the biggest barriers is cost. For the individual. Do you mean um, the, the person in pain or the clinician? The person in pain. Yeah. And probably the clinician, because business models don't encourage or don't really allow for the type of consultation with people who are, I'm talking about complex pain now, not initial acute pain. I think that every clinician has the absolute responsibility to ensure that acute pain is handled appropriately so that it doesn't have the capacity or we decrease the capacity for it to become chronic. I think that is a basic, absolute importance for any any practitioner who's working with patients. And we can make or break that situation in the very early stages of an interaction. But for people who are in chronic pain, we know that they're not going to fit well into a private practice's business model. A lot of private practices work at a 20-minute consultation point to be able to make money. We are not appropriately remunerated in terms of money for time. I know that if somebody has got a complex problem, the biggest thing I can do, or the first thing I can do that's going to help them is to listen to their story and I can get the, the details of the complexity of their story and factors that might be impacting on it and where I might start my education about them because not everybody with chronic pain has a fear avoidant pattern. They might be the overachievers. And so if I just throw the whole lot at them, it's not going to be useful. So I need time to hear their story to find out the context of their pain. And that can take an hour and an hour and a half. And so that is a big barrier for integrating my preferred method of management, which I know is evidence-based and and which is in in keeping with the science. And so we have put in some submissions for recognition of this with the latest MBS submission through the APA. And even if we were compensated through um, Medicare for an initial consult, at a length of a one hour so that we could develop a plan for people then to be be managed within the Medicare system in a group setting even or for um, shorter one-on-one consults. I think that that would it's not ideal but I think it's a step in the right direction so that we could make ideal pain management more accessible for people who are stuck with persistent pain and I think that there's a two-pronged attack. We, we must all tackle that initial early acute pain and use the right language, communication styles, appropriate intervention and not intervene when it's not appropriate. All of those things that are good management for acute situations but then when the situation has become more problematic and early identification of risk factors so that we can try and stem those from becoming. But once we have these people in chronic pain and we know that we've got a lot of them, we've got 20% of our population, they need to be offered a, a better 
financially remunerated positions so that we can actually treat them and help them properly. And this is so that we can actually relieve some of the pressure on the tertiary pain clinics. A lot of people don't need to get to that tertiary pain clinic stage if we could treat them in primary care and still be appropriately remunerated for it. So you're, you're engaged at a federal level. What about at a state level? I mean, where that's tertiary care is normally state funded right? Uh, well the Medicare system is federal so we're looking at trying to get some scheduled items through Medicare but certainly the tertiary levels pain management units in the hospitals are state funded but I actually think we need to try and keep people out of them. Yeah but so but I just wonder whether actually it's in the state it's in the interest of the state budget to keep people in the primary care Right, so so I know there are a range of organisations sort of umbrellaed with Pain Australia that are sort of lobbying state and federal yeah. levels for this. Yeah. Um, and the health, uh, the other thing that I, I thought that you might touch on was that whether this is feasible or not, but using funding levers as disincentives for low value care. Mm. I don't know if that's something that's on the radar or not. I know there's been a, a furor in. Victoria and particularly in the UK where the decision makers have said right, well, you're not getting paid to do that intervention mm. and entire professional groups are out of a job or more to the point have to change what they're doing but uh, do you think that's on our horizon? Well I think that's probably part of what came through with the um, review of alternative and complementary practices and so a lot of our physios were affected by that when Pilates was considered under that umbrella and the APA has lobbied to have that reconsidered and I think yeah look it it may be appropriate but then you know on the other hand we some of those practices have a role in the management of chronic pain people if those practitioners were appropriately skilled as well I mean yeah yeah so I I think it is quite complex in that sense but there are certainly I think in terms of passive therapies we should be really saying hey there isn't a place for this, but that's a can of worms. Oh, so is. <laughs> I reckon our time's up, Di. Yes. It's a pleasure to chat with you in a way that everyone else can listen in and remember, honoured member, oh, what a great day it is and happy birthday. <laughs> thank you very much, Loz, and thank you, as always, for your, for your great input and insight and into the way you're thinking about pain management into the future. No worries, Dylan. Thanks a lot. <laughs> that was Professor Lorimer Mosley and Diane Wilson, and you've been listening to another episode of Talking Physio. One final thank you to Flexies, Australia's number one heat wrap, for helping us to produce this podcast. Thank you, Flexies, and thank you all for listening. I hope it's been both informative and interesting, and we can't wait to bring you another episode very soon. Thank you. Thank you.